0: Hi, welcome to 1823 podcast from Liverpool John Moores University. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith, a sinister technology that undermines our privacy or a valuable tool that helps keep us safe. In this episode we're discussing the rise of facial recognition technology.
1: Facial recognition is still in its relative infancy as a tool. Its potential is enormous. But at the moment, it's still, I think, very much in uncharted territory. There are many ways to make our society secure without living in a security state, and there we have very good policing, but we don't want to live in a police state. The notion that that technology might be used in limited circumstances to find from, against a small list of wanted offenders for serious violence. I think the public would expect us to be
2: thinking about how we can use that technology. 18.23 podcast.
0: This month, February 2020, the Metropolitan Police will start using live facial recognition cameras on the streets of London. The cameras will be linked to a watch list of people who are wanted by the police or courts. And the force says it will help to tackle serious crime. At the same time, the European Union... Remember That, is set to publish a white paper this month recommending a temporary ban on facial recognition technology in public places. They'll be welcomed by campaigners who describe the technology as a serious threat to civil liberties. So who's got it right? That's one of the things we'll be discussing in this episode. Later we'll also change tack slightly and talk about how we identify faces. We're gonna look at some of the differences between humans and machines when it comes to effective facial recognition and facial identification. But first, policing. Should we fear the creep of surveillance or should we see it as a way of protecting the public?
1: If there's a technology that we can use lawfully, which we can, this is, one, uh, is available with massive safeguards and all sorts of governance and checks, Uh, that the notion that that technology might be used in limited circumstances to find against a small list of wanted offenders for serious violence, I think the public would expect us to be thinking about how we can use that technology.
2: Never before have members of the public been treated like walking ID cards, Subjected to an ongoing police lineup,
3: that our identities have to be biometrically checked to make sure we're not criminals. That's a complete inversion of the of the traditional presumption of innocence that is so at the heart of British civil liberties.
0: That's the Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick, followed by Silky Carlo from the campaign group Big Brother Watch. To discuss both sides of that argument, I caught up with Karen Cummings from the Liverpool Centre for Advanced Policing at LJMU. Karen has vast experience in policing, having been a Detective Chief Superintendent and Head of Professional Standards among her other roles in the force. I started by asking her how she viewed the development of this type of technology.
1: It's a subjective, and debatable question, the use of uh, facial recognition and uh, whether the benefits outweigh the issues that that are being raised around sorts of privacy and human rights, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll talk about the ethics in a moment, but first of all, with your policing experience, how effective as a tool do you think facial recognition technology is in, you know, identifying offenders and keeping the public safe?
1: Um, I think that therein lies uh, one of the fundamental issues with this, really, is Facial recognition is still in its relative infancy as a tool. Its potential is enormous, but at the moment um, it's still, I think, very much in uncharted territory. It's still only being used in isolation in certain parts of the UK and certain police forces and and, and even across the globe, really. But what what it has the potential to do, if developed properly and developed further, um, is, is enormous in terms of crime prevention, crime detection, you know, sort of minimising terrorists, etc. Um But I think there's a lot of work to be done, really, at the moment to, to get it to the point that it needs to be from an evidential perspective.
0: So in practical terms, this would capture people's faces in public spaces and then a computer will compare them to images that the police would already have on file and see if there's a match.
1: Yeah, the technology um, maps faces in a crowd and then it would compare them with a watch list of images um, that, that police or law enforcement already holds. So that could include suspects, missing people or persons of interest. So a camera would scan faces in large crowds or public spaces and then it would, it, it would run a map to see if it could identify them again uh, against images that it held on file.
0: So I, as a law-abiding citizen uh, who's not known to the police, I I wouldn't match, or hopefully I wouldn't match, any images that the police already hold. So what then happens to my image and my date and my location? Does that all get deleted?
1: Well, in theory, it should. I mean, you you know, um, in terms of sort of freedom of information legislation now and, you know, what the police can and cannot hold, then those images should be deleted. In practical terms, how... And, and whether that happens, I don't know. Um, as I say, because because the technology is still in its infancy, then I imagine the processes that sit behind it are as well. That said, you know, sort of freedom of information and data integrity would require that those those images are um, are not returned. I mean, obviously, the the images that are already on record, be it from suspects or missing people, they're held under different sets of circumstances. But in terms of the mapping of, of the information, you know, um, it's out there, and I, I suppose that's one of the issues around the the, the regularity process that sits behind this. What regulations are in place, um, and how is is it managed, and what's the governance process to make to make sure that it's being utilised properly?
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess that whenever the police are given new powers, whether it be facial recognition, whether it's stop and search or DNA databases. There's that debate, isn't there, about where, does it encroach too much on privacy and individual freedoms? How difficult is it to, to get that balance right?
1: It is really difficult because you are balancing um, a criteria, or a set of circumstances um, that might justify it against a person's rights privacy, um, a person's human rights, etc. What I would say is it's got to be a sliding scale. Um, in terms of what you're using it for. So we already know that globally the UK has got greater CCTV coverage than any any other Western country in the world. So we we already have sort of accusations around sort of a Big Brother state, etc. from a policing background. I, I would argue that the benefits of things like CCTV and surveillance opportunities from a crime prevention and a protecting the public perspective far outweigh the negatives people know that they're there they know that they're in public places you know this is very different to monitoring people in secret Um, there are already legislative requirements in place that govern how the police surveil people watch people what they do with that information so this isn't new legislation you know for the police to undertake any type of surveillance activity they need to do uh, you know, they need to have proper authorities in place by law, authorised by se- senior police officers or senior personnel within um, public bodies. So those safeguards are already in place. What I'm not seeing is where those safeguards sit around facial recognition. For it to be utilised in a, a policing capacity, I would just want to see some reassurance that there were safeguards wrapped around how it's used, when it's used, where it's used, and what it's used for,
0: mm. and that's something Liberty, the human rights organisation, had talked about it being a, a very serious threat that it poses to our rights and freedoms. And they described it as a dystopian technology that poses a danger to our democratic values.
1: It's a balance, isn't it? You know, if if this kind of technology is being utilised in relatively minor scenarios, then I would agree around those breaches of, of human rights and, and, you know, a person's liberty. But if this is about catching people who are committing serious criminal offences, um, who are undermining the law of the land and the security of the land and, and, and public safety, then that's a different argument. I mean, crime is evolving all the time. Um, we, we live in a world where we are constantly... Uh, have half an eye to, to terrorism threats and, and, and the risks that they pose. And if this kind of technology makes society safer for the vast majority of people, then I, I believe that the vast majority of the public would say, no, it's the it should be utilised. Um, and that, they're the kind of scenarios that I would see this being used where information, intelligence or circumstances suggest that there is the potential for either serious disorder or serious threat to members of the public at large. There has got to be a rationale. You know, we very very much use the term necessity and proportionality in policing. We need to be able from a law enforcement perspective or a public safety perspective, justify, rationalize why something is necessary so that might be, you know, that that the, the, there's the potential for crime or disorder, but then it's not just the justification; it's the proportionality of it. Mm-hmm. So, to prevent mass disaster, to prevent uh, significant loss of life, absolutely, I think that the um, the technology should be developed with proper governance and proper uh, process wrapped around it. But at the same time, it can't be a one, you know, a one size fits all. And of course, the the other thing with this technology is, I I talked about it being developed and said at the very start of this, it's still relatively young uh, as a tool. I do think it needs to be developed. There are already been flaws identified within the technology in terms of how it identifies uh, individuals and, and where it's been successful, so when you actually look at where it's been used, actually the the, the, the percentage of successful matches is relatively low. Mm. It's known to be less successful in terms of women. It's less successful uh, around certain ethnicities and certain races. Where there's been the, the, the bigger successes with it or the greater successes around white European males generally. So you've got to look at that technology to say, what what is it achieving? And I think as well, what are you using it for? So. At the moment, I do not think that the technology is advanced enough to be used evidentially. All of those idiosyncrasies, if you like, that I've just identified would need to be ironed out. um, In the same way that with DNA, a scientist will maybe use an expression of there's a a one in 10 million chance that that's that individual. It's got to have that same level of confidence in this as a product. So from an evidential perspective, I don't think it can be utilised in the same way that maybe a fingerprint is or eye recognition or um, DNA without sort of it being developed further. What it could be used as is a prevention tool. um, So it might narrow down suspects, it might narrow down images, but there would always have to be that further additional information or evidence that supports the fact that some... You know, because at the moment there are too many flaws in the process for it to be entirely accurate.
0: Yeah, well one of those flaws that you mentioned was the inaccuracy and the limitations. And they were some of the reasons that were given for banning police use of facial recognition in San Francisco. In May 2019, it became the first major American city to introduce such a ban. And we can hear now from Aaron Peskins, who's the city supervisor there who sponsored the bill
1: this is a technology uh, that misidentified 28 members of the United States Congress, um, but really um, can be terribly misused by governments. Um, So this legislation says we're going to have use policies over existing and future technologies, um, but we want to put the facial recognition technology, um, we want to put that genie back in the bottle.
0: So mass surveillance of minority groups was something that was picked out there and you can appreciate that that people in some of those groups would become concerned and suspicious if if those limitations exist in technology that's being used.
1: Absolutely and I wouldn't see any circumstances where it would be utilised or it should be utilised for mass surveillance of minority groups. Straight away by the very nature of its use in those circumstances you're hitting all of those arguments that the likes of liberty and, and, and civil rights groups make. It's not about narrowing down the field around particular minority groups, but for general crime prevention, for general security, you know, sort of protection of security, all of those kind of things. I can absolutely say, why, like, if developed with the appropriate, appropriate governance and legislation wrapped around it, it would be a tool that we would want law enforcement to use. And the kind, of, the kind of things that jump to my mind are things like the London terrorist attacks. The nine eleven attacks, all of those kind of things. Um, obviously, the technology would be utilised in conjunction with other information, other intelligence, to potentially identify persons of interest, persons believed to be pre- presenting a risk. In those kind of like, you know, narrow down your parameters that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. But to to use it to just target particular groups would, I I, I can't disagree with that argument at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess just in conclusion, what we're seeing here is the fact that new technology like this illustrates that your students who study here at the Liverpool Centre for Advanced Policing, they're preparing for a career that is constantly evolving with new practices, new approaches, new technologies being developed all the time.
1: Absolutely. We are constantly evolving. We still operate and policing still operates very much. Um, reactively in terms of sort of traditional investigations, traditional types of routes to, to detecting crime and identifying offenders. Um, but we know now that criminals are advancing in terms of technology at uh, a race and, and policing and, and law enforcement's got to keep up with them. Obviously the cost of these advancements and technologies is increasing. And for policing and law enforcement to be successful it's got you know it's got to keep up with the digital age, it's got to keep up with the um, the advancements that we talked about so this is absolutely something of course our students here at, at the liverpool center for advanced policing studies they they study a wide range of of, of issues relating to policing and issues relating to communities the, the public that we deal with the partners that we work with but at the same time now it's it's recognizing that policing is an evolving profession and more and more of it is is technology-based and, and needs to be developed by working together in in the academic world, in the professional world, in the digital world.
0: Thanks, Karen. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. That's Karen Cummings from the Liverpool Centre for Advanced Policing Studies here at LJMU.
2: You're listening to 1823 Podcast.
0: We've talked so far about how technology can map and recognise faces as well as its limitations. And I'm interested to know now how we humans compare. How good are we at recognising faces? Joining me now are Dr Jessica Liu and Dr Sarah Shrimpton from LJMU's Face Lab. Hi to you both. Hello. And thanks for your time for coming to chat to us. Obviously, you've you've each got different research interests around facial depiction, recognition, and identification, and we'll we'll kind of talk through some of the the topics there. But firstly, I'm interested to know what is actually happening when we recognise a face or when we don't recognise a face. What kind of processes are going on in our brain?
2: Essentially, there's kind of two types of face recognitions there's unfamiliar and familiar face recognition so the unfamiliar face recognition is when you just say seen somebody once and then you see them again a week later and you may or may not recognize them um but familiar face recognition is what we're uh, most using for our friends families relatives things like that and um basically you are matching the face that you see to a stored memory for that person um And we are remarkably good at that, given that we might see people in very different lighting conditions. Mm. There might be quite a long period of time between when we last saw them. Um, It could be that there's an image of the person, there's something going on with the image. It might be uh, blurry or from a long distance, but we're still able to recognise that person from our stored memory. And there is some uh, theoretical models of um, face recognition and face memory in that you have some kind of face space where your own face or some kind of average face is in the middle of that space and then all other faces that you see are stored as a memory within that face space. Oh, that's right? okay. And um, when you see somebody, you then match to that, that stored memory in that face space. So the more kind of average faces are clustered towards the center of that face space, it's more difficult to actually kind of differentiate between people. And then the more distinctive faces are further away from that face space. So if somebody's quite distinctive looking, they're known to be quite memorable because mm. there's mm. less faces from which to kind of extract them from the face memory. So that's kind of the principles of face storage, if you like. Um, and then comes the issue of uh, encoding that face. So that's um, what you're looking at when you're trying to familiarise yourself with the face. And If we go back to the unfamiliar and familiar face recognition side of things, you look at things like hairstyle for unfamiliar faces, so the external parts of the face. And then for familiar faces, you've built up a more robust face memory, so you'll look at more of the internal features. So that's why if you see somebody once and then see them on the street a week later and they've changed their hairstyle, you might not recognise them. But if it's a relative, it doesn't matter if they've changed their hair because you know their internal features so much more. Mm.
0: And are we all drawn to the same features on the face or will will that differ from person to person?
2: For the most part, yes. So Mm. some eye tracking studies have looked at the areas of the face that we look at for familiar faces. Um, And yes, we look at kind of the central features quite a lot of the time, it's the eyes and then the mouth for communication and then the nose is obviously in the middle of that space. So it's it's the internal features that we all generally look at. Mm.
0: And you mentioned people in different conditions, maybe different lighting conditions, maybe seeing a photograph of someone that might be black and white rather than colour. How does that impact on us when it comes to helping to identify someone?
3: I think it depends uh, if you saw the photograph first or if you saw the actual person first. I would imagine there is a gap where if you know how the person looks like or you know what the person looks like and then you're comparing photographs of black and white then perhaps you're more easy to match up the two mm-hmm. Where if you've seen the black and white photograph first and you were asked to can you identify people from the from array of people then that might be a bit
2: more problematic.
0: So do we kind of lock in the image from how we first saw it and that's what we always compare back to?
2: If it's just that one image yes mm-hmm. yeah there's a certain element of kind of image matching going on but the more familiar you become with somebody then it becomes less relevant as to the quality of the image right, right. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, what Jess was saying is true kind of you, it's a, a matching process to start with
0: yeah when I was talking to Karen earlier we, we talked about the limitations around technology and recognizing faces and the inaccuracies with um, you know women for instance and certain ethnic groups. Um, do we as humans have difficulties with any particular characteristics?
3: Um, I don't think it's more to do with the difference in the genders or the difference in the population. I think it's more to do with uh, how familiar are you with a certain population. So, for example, if if you're a South Africa practitioner and you're exposed to multiple different uh, population groups and facial diversity there is immense Hmm. like you see how how you you put it it's very different yeah there's a bigger range there's a bigger range of facial diversity Mm. so then you'll probably be better in recognizing different types of faces Mm. whereas if you're say uh from china and the group over there is a lot more homogenous then it'll probably be quite difficult for you to recognize people who are not in that population Mm. or that
2: looks very different yeah yeah that sort of what you were looking at
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's
2: a kind of own face bias, right? Essentially, okay. get even with age as well. So you're supposedly better at recognizing faces of a similar age to you than than a different age. Okay. Um. So like Jess was saying, it's more about your exposure mm. to different populations. It's facial diets.
0: Yeah, facial <laughs>
2: diet. <laughs> well,
0: it's interesting you mention age as well because our faces change as we get older. How difficult is it, particularly with a younger person? I, mean, th- I think we all have this, don't we, where you meet like an older person who tells you how much you've changed or how much you've grown or they tell you you look like a relative or something like that. Um, how, how difficult is it to recognise a face as it has aged since we last saw it?
3: Um, a previous study have said that it's very difficult, actually, for people to recognise what age a child is. It becomes more accurate as you become older, Um, But of course it's like plus or minus 10 years, but in children plus or minus 10 years, it's a big Mm. age range Mm. So it's very difficult for you to say whether or not that child is six years old or nine years old Now that might seem a very small difference But when you're looking at children's growth that becomes quite quite a big gap because a child can look quite different between the two ages but we are not very good at recognizing what age that child is, mm. which is quite fascinating.
2: Mm. Yeah, and in terms of like age gap between when you last saw somebody and when you're currently seeing them, it's off. It, I mean, age obviously comes into it, but there's a lot of other things like their lifestyle and their diet and things like that mm. that can dramatically change somebody's appearance. But in general, adult, you know, if you saw somebody when they were 30 and then you saw them again at 50 mm. and you knew them quite well, then in theory you should be able to recognize them but we seem to struggle quite a lot between child and adult that Mm. gap is um quite difficult because like Jess was saying you know there's there's facial growth going on and then after that you have facial aging Mm. um so there's two kinds of processes going on there which makes it quite difficult to recognize yeah
0: and typically what are the kind of the growth changes that a, a child's face goes through that might cause us not to recognise them a couple of years later?
3: So the proportion of the face changes, uh, typically speaking, the, the distance between the eyes doesn't change that much with, within the eye region, but the face kind of grows downwards and outwards in okay. that sort of fashion. So uh, in terms of mid-face and below, that will change quite drastically. Um, because as you grow you need to accommodate for chewing, uh, eating your food so your jaw tends to have to grow bigger to accommodate with your growth in terms of Mm. eating more food. Okay,
0: Yes. and that obviously leads us into the fascinating area of age progression images and that's something that you've studied in your thesis as well Jessica. And, and you looked at how we can identify missing and exploited children by by creating an image of what they might look months and, and years later.
3: Yes, so my, my uh, thesis sort of looked into how accurate is the method? Can we actually make the prediction of a child looking older or is that sort of more artistic practice? So there are a lot of um, studies related to uh, orthodontics uh, on how you put braces on children, or when you would put braces on children. And those data sets creates a very good uh, indication on when children would grow and how the face would grow in terms of measurements of the face. Now, it is quite difficult to say you are going to grow this way and this person is going to grow different. Because a lot of these studies have taken averages of the growth. And when you apply an average to an individual, you will probably get a general idea, but it definitely wouldn't be exactly indicating how the person would grow, um, which would be the limitation. Mm. Now, then we talk about accuracy. When you create an age progression, and then you say, well, how accurate is it? Well, in my opinion, it'll never look exactly the same because you're predicting something that's controlled by a lot of different factors. But does it say that, you know, if it's like, if the image that you've created Cre- like have a, have a likeness of the actual person, then maybe somebody would recognize that image, mm. then accuracy becomes very difficult to quantify. Because as Sarah said earlier, um, people tend to have different abilities as well, to recognize a face, some people are better at recognizing faces than others.
0: In terms of accuracy, you, you shared some sort of examples and case studies of, of how age progression images had been used. And the one that I think was really interesting is the um, JC um image. You know, she, she was abducted at the age of 11 and then discovered 18 years later. And once she'd been discovered, the real life photograph of her at the age of 29 is, is really similar to how the artists had predicted that she would look in the age progression imagery. I mean, is that typical or is that just a a really, really good example?
3: Well, it's interesting you said that because when you looked at the image, um, there were only two photographs. There was one photograph of the age progression and there was one photograph of what she actually looks like Mm. as a target, uh, as you know, when when uh, when she's 20-odd years old. But the difficult thing is you already know that they are the same person, Mm. but when you actually put it into a realistic uh, scenario, would people recognize her based on that age progression image? It can be quite difficult to quantify because we're not really, you can't really set that up in an experiment. Um, now she wasn't rec- to, to my knowledge, she wasn't recognized, uh, by the photograph, she was actually recognized by other circumstances. Yeah. Then again, it's difficult to say whether or not the age progression image has actually helped the, uh, mm-hmm. the case. It definitely have helped to put the case back out into the media for people to discuss and maybe perhaps have some links to the case, Um, but I think Mm. that there is definitely a limitation there in terms of whether or not we can quantify inaccuracy.
0: But there is certainly a couple of other examples where the image is credited with being a major factor in in finding them, the um, Arik Austin case or the Joseph Carson cases. And again, we see the three pictures there, don't we? We see what what the children looked like when they went missing. We get what they looked like when they were found and the age progression image in the middle as well uh, has really helped to identify them.
3: Yeah. So a lot of these photographs uh, takes uh, images of relatives So, of course, with a biological resemblance, you say, oh, uh, the the child might look like mom, the child might look like dad. Then you take those reference images and make a facial composite of what the person could have looked like. And, of course, that can be quite accurate because majority of the time, you're going to look like your mother or Mm -hmm. your father or your sister or your cousin. Mm
0: It's really interesting. We'll um, we'll post some of those um, case study images up on the uh, on the notes section for the podcast as well. So either on the LJMU website or wherever you get your podcast from, we will uh, we'll put those pictures up and you can have a look at the ones that we were just talking about. Um, and obviously, all of the stuff that we've talked about feeds into into the work that you do at um, FaceLab at LJMU as well. And some really fascinating projects you work on there. Just give us a couple of examples of things that you've done or that you might be working on at the moment.
3: I mean, when we're talking about making a realistic face, that's probably what we do uh, in the lab, is we're trying to uh, put a face on, uh, specifically put it on a, from a skeletal remains so or from a skull. We create a face and often we have to create an image that looks realistic enough for people to make the recognition. And uh, we can do that for forensic cases and also for archaeological cases. In terms of forensic, uh, it will be probably a missing person or skeletalized remains uh, that's found somewhere. Uh, we will be commissioned to make, produce a facial depiction of the deceased um, and that image will be put out to the public and hope for somebody to recognise that face. Whereas for archaeological cases, we tend to have a lot more... Uh, artistic uh, license that we can make the image look a lot more realistic put color on it put hair uh, depending on the historical period
0: and some fascinating examples and i guess if you're listening in i would recommend looking at the facelab pages on ljmu.ac.uk and you can have a look at some of the examples that the team have worked on there but uh, thanks very much jessica and uh, sarah for joining us today that's dr jessica Liu and dr sarah shrimpton from ljmu's facelab
2: this is 1823 podcast
0: thanks to jessica and sarah for sharing their expertise on this as i mentioned there you can find links to the case studies that we've discussed in the show notes for this episode and there are some really fascinating stories there that are well worth a read Uh, and thanks before that to karen cummings who kicked off this episode with a look at the issues and the current debate around the use of facial recognition technology in policing And that's a debate that is certainly not going to go away anytime soon. Thanks to you for checking us out. We'll be back very soon with our next episode. The editor of 1823 Podcast is Ben Jones. Our producer is Michael Humphreys.